Welcome back, everybody. Today on Say What Needs Saying, we have two discussion topics on the docket, one of which is the winner of our Facebook poll, which is discussing salaries. And so is it or is it not acceptable to talk about how much you or other people make at work? And then the other topic that we're going to be getting into is the quote unquote, don't say gay bill. It's the parental rights and education bill that was recently signed into law on Monday, March 28th. So for those who haven't read the bill or aren't very familiar with it, just want to give a brief overview of what this bill actually does, or at least intends to do. There's been a lot of division over what it intends to do. And there are parts, and we'll get to this, there are parts of the language that are still vague. The Department of Education still has to set what age appropriate means and so on. But in general, the parental rights and education bill, essentially this bill and now law aims to do a couple different things. The first of which is that it intends to protect student welfare by making uh, schools have to report changes in services or monitoring related to students' health. Schools can't encourage the hiding of this info from parents. For example, if a student comes out to a teacher and as gay or as trans, they can't withhold that information unless a, quote, reasonably prudent person would believe that disclosing the information would result in abuse, abandonment, or neglect. The main portion of the law, it prevents classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity from K through three. And then after third grade, it has to be taught in a quote unquote age appropriate or developmentally appropriate manner. Uh, student support services training has to adhere to Department of Education standards. At the beginning of the school year, par parents must be provided a list of healthcare services offered by that school, and then parents can withdraw their consent or decline any specific service that's offered. Students, um, if they're given a well-being or health questionnaire, that questionnaire or survey has to be sent to the parents first for their consent before going to the K through three student. And then the school districts have to implement procedures for parents to be able to notify principals of the schools with concerns uh, about this type of education or instruction. And the schools have to set up a system so that these concerns can be addressed and resolved within seven days. So this has led to a lot of controversy. The, there are opponents that think that this hurts confidential conversations between counselors and kids or teachers and kids. There's are concerns about, about quote unquote, outing gay or trans kids to their parents. This has been expressed by a couple different people criticizing the bill. There's concerns over vagueness in the language. The Department of Education hasn't yet set age appropriate standards. And so those will determine how, especially after third grade, these topics must be discussed. And, and then a handful of other concerns. There's concerns over frivolous lawsuits occurring and costing taxpayers additional money. There's concerns that routine medical treatments will require permission from parents. And if parents don't respond, then maybe those routine treatments won't be able to be administered. The list goes on. But the primary concern that people have with this bill is that it prevents the 
use of certain language or engagement in conversations involving either the word gay specifically or anything in, in that realm, right, about sexual orientation or gender identity and things. And this is why it's been dubbed the quote unquote, don't say gay bill by its detractors. We've heard celebrity after celebrity talk about it in a, in a very negative light. Um, and so essentially, I want to turn it over to you all and hear what you think and hear your thoughts on this bill. Well, now law. Is this something that's acceptable? Is it limiting the rights of teachers or is it protecting the rights of parents? That in and of itself is also a controversy that's been going around recently is how much say should parents versus educators have in curriculum and, and what goes on in the classroom. So yeah, let me know if anyone wants to jump in, feel free. Okay, I'll jump in. Um, first of all, I, I agree with the sentiment of this bill. Um, anyone who's been taking the time to read about um, stuff that's been going on in classrooms, both politically and uh, with regards to discussion of sex and gender and such, I would guess that most people are appalled at this. Most people don't even believe it because they don't want to believe it. But even though I um, agree with the sentiment of this bill, I don't like the approach. My, my position is that we should not need this legislation. And so the, the basic problem is, you know, we have this monolithic, monopolistic public school system and everybody is forced to partake of it, or at least they believe they're forced to partake. Uh, and they're forced to pay taxes into it. So they feel like they have to be part of it because they've paid taxes. And if they opt out of it, they're losing their investment, whatever. But the problem is that, I mean, arguably, you know, 50 years ago, we had a much more homogeneous or homogeneous uh, culture. There was much more general agreement on what was appropriate to do and say and what was not appropriate to do and say in general, even in the public square. And also, of course, in the schools and uh, people with the kind of agendas that are now exposing children to these things today would, without, without question, have simply been removed from the classroom 50 years ago. As much as you might agree with the sentiment of this thing, I think conservatives, whatever you define that term, often are taking the wrong approach. There is an excellent article that appeared in Reason.com on the 28th. That's like four or five days ago. The title of the article is Want to Stop Book Battles, Give Parents Real Choice in Education. And I'll quote you one sentence from that article. It says, dictating what must be taught and what absolutely cannot be taught from a governor's mansion or a state house is a strange way to empower parents. And I'll agree with that. The problem is that what conservatives now who are losing the culture battle are trying to do is they're trying to battle this thing, you know, fight this thing with legislation that restricts what is done in the schools. And the better fight and the better approach would be simply to ramp up the demand for school choice and put some real muscle behind it. And, uh, you know, one of the, the, the groups that is doing that are the people who are simply abandoning the public schools and taking their children out. They're going to say, if you're not going to provide what I want, I simply won't um, participate anymore. One of the things I post on social media all the time to people complaining about the schools is, I say, why are you still enrolling your kids there? You've always had school choice, use it. So I agree with the sentiment of the article is, um, you know, 
we can we can try to legislate this stuff. And so then what's going to happen in blue states? Well, they're going to legislate the other way. They're going to legislate that you must cover this material in the schools. And they'll legislate that, uh, you know, we have to take um, Huckleberry Finn out of the classroom because it contains uh, what they regard as offensive language and stuff like this. Uh, so then we, we have this losing battle where based upon where you live, you you are now subject to the whims of whatever political party is um, ruling your state. And the real fat fright, the real battle should be to get school choice and to be able to choose what school uh, your tax money gets um, sent to. So I had a similar conversation with, this was on the Academia Uncensored series. Uh, I was talking with a parent who had concerns over mask mandates at her, at her children's school. And we talked about this a little bit in that I don't know how much of an issue that really would have been had there been the possibility for other schools to rise up and not need to enforce these mask mandates, right? If there was school choice in that sense, in the sense that schools could uh, choose whether to implement mask mandates, then she could more easily withdraw her uh, her children from that school and put them into an alternative option. Um, she wound up having to still do uh, online school. I can't remember exactly what she did, but yeah. So on that, on that, I guess sentiment. I, I think that school choice is definitely part of the problem here, or rather, the lack of school choice, um, and, and that is leading to this type of division across different states. I would say that we're already seeing blue states banning different things. Um, you've seen certain books be banned for racism and other reasons. And I'm not sure in the in the meantime, I think that school choice is a good long-term goal and we should be striving towards it. But there's a part of me that wonders whether bills like this, I don't know, I don't want to say are necessary, but at least serve as a band-aid fix to protect the, in either direction, protect the values of the local parents or, or community that, you know, want their public schools to operate in this way. Um, because I don't see, to, to the extent that you and I want more or less ultimate, uh, complete school choice, I don't see that happening anytime soon. And so I wonder whether this serves as almost a band-aid in the intermediate. But yeah, you, you bring up some good points that it's, it, it is sort of a band-aid solution. Go ahead, Mr. Man. I think um, I, I partially agree with Dave there that it does, um, school choice is what we should be focusing on. However, I do see the point that at least the intention behind the bill, which is to uh, give par parents more of uh, rights and uh, also to prevent any inappropriate, um, age inappropriate. Although I do understand that what age inappropriate means is um, vague. However, I do see the intention behind it, which is to support and protect kids from suspicious environments and also to protect uh, parents. Uh, that said, I do think that it could be modified a little more I do think uh, there should be details on what the text means by age inappropriate, and also um, adding some uh, some information about what um, sexual orientation discussion uh, means. Is it to impose a gender ideology or a particular type of ideology, or is it just to 
discuss certain um, like terms or if someone, let's say examples that have been brought up on mainstream media is if someone talks about, oh, um, someone with two moms comes in and talks about the fact that they have two moms, is that uh, deemed uh, inappropriate? Um, which I don't think should be. The, the, that kid just has two moms and should be able to talk about it. But there are certain things that go into the uh, underlying ideology we're speaking about, but um, that shouldn't be. So I think there needs to be more clarified language there. That is part of the one of the largest concerns, right, is the vague nature of this. Another example that I saw that was sort of along the same lines was that if a, if a student is to come in with concerns about, I, I suppose, concerns about their sexuality or gender identity, and the teacher is worried that they are suicidal, right, and that the, this may be impacting their mental health, and the implications of not being able to discuss it then, I think that, again, a lot of this will be clarified once the Department of Education determines what, quote unquote, age appropriate is and all of that means. But at the same time, that portion really only applies to after third grade. I think the bill is, well, it's a little clearer on K through three, but it does still raise those questions of can a student come to school and say my two dads or my two moms or my mom or dad who is transgender said or did this this weekend and i just want to have a conversation with you as my teacher right those are the nuanced aspects of this that i think are getting lost in the partisan struggle of it so the divide is is much more detached or rather the debate has been detached from the text of the bill and i think that this this focus on definitions on on clarity is really where the conversation should be going. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, while that is happening, I do think that the proponents of the bill need to make it clear the intentions behind it, which is to protect uh, children. And also I think there needs to be some sort of, a um, like in the bill itself or somewhere, there needs to be a rationale for why this is being done. And the rationale is that uh, kids are highly malleable and uh, don't know much and um, uh, parents are their decision makers and that uh, kid i'm talking about the particular age we're, uh, we're talking about and um, kids don't know better and kids oftentimes uh, uh, when they're young they take on various uh, uh, various roles and this is part of known in terms of uh, developmental psychology where kids like to role play in different uh, like characters or costumes or, uh, and this is part of uh, play, like regular uh, uh, play in, um, in kids. And part of that is also to take on uh, various gender roles or identities, or maybe wearing your mom's makeup or wearing certain clothes for a little bit or doing certain things. Uh, but that should not be equated as, oh, this kid has a, uh, like a, trans, uh, is, this kid is trans or this kid uh, needs to go through certain uh, lifestyles uh, in order to live as, uh, let's say, gender non-binary or other forms. I think that is the mistake that's done when certain these types of behaviors is noticed. And I think that that does lead to 
consequences that can be uh, uh, detrimental. Uh, folks should uh, look at work done by Abigail Schreier, who has uh, um, come up with a book talking about uh, how this has affected uh, young children. Um, and so this needs to be very carefully done. So I think the bill, the fact that the bill does protect kids, uh, and that needs to be elaborated a bit further. She wrote the book that talked about how it was more common in young females, right? That was what that book talked about. Yeah, so uh, she, she wrote the book where ever since social media and the iPhone came out, um, before that, there used to be gender uh, dysphoria or uh, in, in children, but that used to be primarily in boys. And then uh, ever since uh, social media and all of this uh, came out, that uh, she noted that this became uh, more common in girls and uh, behavior within girls is more uh, contagious. And she gave a lot of other examples where this became a trend in let's say school where some folks were uh, identifying with a certain thing and every other of their girlfriends felt like they needed to identify uh, with that trend. She also gave this example, which I thought was shocking. Um, in During the pandemic, a TikTok trend came out where uh, everyone was, uh, or kids start, or these celebrities started reporting that they were uh, having some kind of a tick, like a motor tick, like a Tourette syndrome. And then it just, uh, the incidence of uh, that kind of a motor tick or behavior became more apparent in girls uh, because girls are one of a big audience on TikTok and they were watching the, these celebrities uh, talking about their uh, supposed motor tics. Uh, and so it became a contagious behavior as opposed to actually anything wrong with in terms of uh, uh, tick behavior. So that was one example which I was shocked by, but th there's several other examples like this where behavior becomes contagious and the problem with uh, gender ideology, uh, and we're not talking about, we should make it clear uh, that this is not talking about uh, trans uh, rights in adults. Uh, people have the rights to live in whatever way they want to when they're adults. There's no, this is not questioning that. This is questioning about certain, certain behaviors that kids have that is then mistaken into, oh, this is a trans kid or this is a non-binary kid. Well, and it also raises the concept that whether or not we're talking about LGBT type sexual orientation or gender identities, I think either way, like one thing that I've seen several times from proponents of this bill, proponents of this law, is that even heterosexual sexual orientation conversations are probably not appropriate for kindergartners are probably not appropriate for first, second, third graders. And so, yes, this bill, it, the context surrounding this bill, the culture war going on in the country around these specific LGBT issues, it does frame it in that light and it does focus it on those types of conversations. And I'm sure that's what raises some of the concerns about the vagueness of the language. But at the end of the day, it, it should also be noted that 
talking about heterosexual sexual relationships or orientations or things like that is also prevented by this bill prevented you know you can't talk about sexual orientation or gender identity presumably in both contexts right and so that that raises the other issue of what is or is not age appropriate because as you said as an adult this is handled differently in society we don't restrict adults from talking about these things we don't there can there are examples of various ways of handling these types of conversations on college campuses right and so there's some difference school to school in how things are handled in that context but in general this is applying to to children not adults yeah i just wanted to highlight that um not only is it uh, the the rules are different for adults but there's also uh, like a certain cultural rule that we've kind of forgotten uh in terms of when talking about these things from adults to kids so one of the viral videos that was going around in uh mostly right-wing media uh was this teacher in florida um uh who seems to be a gay man with his partner and talk uh, and he was talking about how he can't uh, necessarily talk about his um he can't talk about his uh, uh like weekend getaway or uh, paddle boarding with uh, his partner uh, to his uh, kids. And so, and I, and I watched that and I was like, it doesn't matter who like uh, you are. And even if it's a heterosexual couple or if it's like a heterosexual person, it was never, when I was younger in school, it was never a thing. Like I didn't know what my teacher's personal lives were and I never dared to ask that. And no one should ever be, that should not be a cultural thing where we suddenly normalize, oh, like people talking about their partners, people talking about who they're dating, what they're doing over the weekend. So th that just shouldn't be a thing. Like, um, I don't know, maybe others have other opinions, but I think teachers' personal lives, regardless of their sexual gender identity, should be kept to themselves, not with, um, and not to be discussed with, with uh, kids. So yeah, I mean that the video went viral for me and people had various intentionalities behind it, but I just don't think that it, regardless of who you are, we should be discussing these things with kids. Yeah, well, and I'll turn it over to Dave in just a second because he's got his hand up, but I just to emphasize what you're bringing up, Mr. Man, I, I think it does, it is important to mention that sexual orientation, while people have, people frame it as exclusively a social rights or civil rights issue and, and things like that. The, ultimately, you cannot discuss sexual orientation without implicitly or explicitly discussing who you are sexually attracted to and who you would like to have sex with, right? That is, the, by definition, sexual orientation is who you are sexually attracted to. And however many years ago, it wasn't as... I don't know, it, it was more widely accepted that talking about sexual attraction and 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 sex in these contexts was not acceptable for young children. But in any case, I'll turn it over to Dave. Uh, Dave, go ahead. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to agree with Mr. Mann. Um, and then um, I'm going to get into a subject here that uh, if anybody here knows more about it than I do and wants to correct me, especially Mary, uh, please feel free to go ahead. 
I've had uh, two daughters and now I have three grandsons. And my perception, you know, although it's anecdotal, is that children under the age of 10 really, I mean, they're sort of vaguely aware that there are boys and girls, but they don't have a great interest in this. The whole concept of talking about gender identity or sexual orientation or any of these things, or even sex in general with uh, any of my uh, under 10 grandsons to me just seems utterly preposterous. And so I have to wonder, uh, what are people thinking about when they decide that they're going to do this? Um, and it strikes me that we have a lot of teachers uh, coming out of radicalized education schools who now have an agenda. And they've been taught that their agenda as teachers is to bring these subjects up and to convert the schools uh, dramatically away from um, what we would call academics and convert them into social laboratories or something or social indoctrination camps, really. Um, and I think this can be borne out. I mean, all of you just go look at your own local school district's statements about what the goals for the district are. And I've done this in my local district. District And um, in my experience, I see extremely little being discussed about uh, academics um, and their goals are now all seem to be oriented towards some kind of social objective, uh, whether it be inclusion or other things. It's, it's all couched in the ideology of wokeism and all of this um, political correctness that now pervades our society, including our corporate life. So Somebody is clearly setting an agenda here. So one of the examples I'd like to bring up, um, Mary, by the way, she has her hand up. If you want to jump in at any time, just jump in and interrupt me. There is a, a huge movement going on in the schools that most people don't even know about. It's called consent education. And you can see this at Kent. I think it's consent education. Oh, it's teachconsent.org. And this actually is now so pervasive that it is now the law in Australia and New Zealand, I believe, is that schools are required to teach this. So now you're teaching children about the whole concept of consenting, and you're teaching this from an extremely young age. And the idea is that the way it's sold to the public is that this is all about uh, protecting children by teaching them that it's okay to say no, basically. And when anyone intrudes on your space or does something that Un, makes you uncomfortable. Um, you should you should be, feel comfortable about saying no and and uh, stopping this behavior and everything. And that this all sounds very laudable. It all sounds extremely um, like something that all parents would get behind and all of this. Except that I just have to wonder why do we suddenly need this? And um, you know the the argument is made that well, there's a whole lot of abuse going on. And therefore, we have to uh, teach children how to deal with people who might abuse them and all this. Or, but it's really more about teaching children, apparently, when you look at the materials, to consent to intimate physical contact with each other. It's like, okay, so why, especially before the age of puberty and especially you know, before, let's say, high school age, why is there a whole faction in the education community that is dedicated to teaching this concept to children who, for the most part, in my opinion, don't need to deal with this and don't need to worry about it. Most kids learn consent at a very early age at home, okay? If I tickle my three-year-old grandson uh, and he decides that this is, and he, and he stops laughing and he's decided he's had enough, he says, stop, and I stop. You know, most children learn consent at home. 
And by the time they're three or whatever, they understand consent pretty well. It's like, well, obviously, if someone is doing something that annoys you, you yell stop or you move away or you do whatever you have to do. Why is this now a huge movement and being mandated in schools nationwide in the case of Australia and New Zealand and it's being pushed extremely heavily here? And as with many things that come to us from the from the schools and from the political left in general, my feeling is that this is a kind of a Trojan horse and it goes hand in hand with all sorts of other legal initiatives that they're trying to do. Like, for example, we recently had... Um, the Democrat Party tried to lower the uh, voting age to 16. I don't think many people in their right minds would consider that somebody who hasn't gone to prom yet and is worried about his acne and all of this really at that age um, should have been, uh, sh should, should be granted the, the right to vote. And we had actually, this is called to a vote over this past um, 2021 20, to 22 year and 125 Democrats in the House voted for this. Okay, so this is um, this is not like some 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 joke or some conspiracy theory or something. We have got a serious push now to start treating children as though they were adults. And my concern about this whole consent movement is that its real purpose is not to actually do what they're saying uh, that can do. The idea is, oh, we have taught minors how to consent. We've taught them consent. And therefore, we should now make them legally able to consent to anything and everything that an adult does. And then this opens the door for all sorts of things. Um, and in particular, it would open the door to pedophiles. If a child of 12, let's say, by virtue of this training in school is qualified to consent to anything and everything, well, why don't we just establish a legal precedent that a child of 12 is also you know, qualified legally to consent to sexual relations with an adult of 21 or something like that. And, and that there's actually a very dark motivation behind this whole notion that children are qualified to make these kinds of decisions for themselves. So I'd like to see if someone else, Mary Damer's got her hand up and I want to see her response to all this. Yeah, Mary, go ahead. Yes. And can you hear me? Yes. I have to check. Okay. And I'm not too loud. Yeah, there were a couple of things. Um, Dave, you kind of got to the heart of one of my biggest concerns that, that, that nobody ever talks about. And that is, we do know from research that the more time that are spent on well-designed research-based um, academics, the greater progress students will have. And that means one intensity and second time and um, time put on subject. And, and this is without question, there've been so many research studies. And the thing I never hear from my local school district, and as we're talking about this issue, is the academics. The whole meetings are spent on masks or on um, the, and I don't call it the let's the gay bill because that's been um, a narrative that's supposed to make fun of the bill. There's nothing about the fact that using the word gay is inappropriate or appropriate or being gay is inappropriate or appropriate. And that's, um, that's just been to get people angered. And there's also a, a movement against, um, dis I just came back from Florida where we talked about, a lot of people talked about the movement they see against DeSantis because they see um, he is one of the top um, possible 
um, Republican candidates. And so they're trashing him um, early on. And this bill was a, a good way for them to do that. So, so that's one concern. We don't have the research on a lot of um, things connected to this issue. And so then we have to, like Dave was take people who have um, written books about this, who've worked in this field and our own experiences. I get concerned about this when I think about my own experiences. Um, I was a junior in high school when they decided in Illinois that sex ed was going to be taught your junior year in high school. And so we, they decided the gym teachers would teach sex ed. And so I'll never forget because it really did damage. And this, this is, uh, this is, you're either going to think I'm gross or you're going to think this is laughable. But um, my teacher, she told us she was a virgin. Um, and when she and her friends would go to um, weddings, they'd always say, oh, do you think the brides had done it or not done it? That was my introduction to sex ed. The point she emphasized most in the class was that we were not to ever get um, boys we were with aroused too much because they would be in horrible pain. Um, that if they, you weren't going to have sex with them and they were just going to be aroused, that was for a boy, just, it, it, it would be horrible. I believed it for years. <laughs> I did. This is so pathetic. <laughs> I would be like, oh, am I hurting him yet? <laughs> and, um, so we can't rely on our teach. I mean, the people a large percentage of individuals who go into um, teaching, especially at the elementary level, um, weren't able to um, make it in any other subject in college. And so um, there are some brilliant teachers. Amazing. I admire, I learn from them. They are not the majority. Another experience sitting, um, you know how they have these, um, when they have the practice, if a gun shooters in your building, well, I happened to be in the teacher's lounge that day <laughs> for an hour. We had to stay there. You can't go in the halls or anything. You have to, you know, lie on the floor and everybody's talking. And in that school, the gym teacher was um, teaching HIV and other about HIV. It was relatively new at the time. But there was enough research I knew about it. I had, I, 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 I had lost many of the misconceptions. And um, but this teacher was, he was, the other teachers were asking him questions and what he was teaching, how the kids were reacting. And he was, he was saying some things that were just not accurate. <laughs> the research had not shown. And, uh, you know, and sitting on a toilet didn't always give you HIV. Um, as did, he went into several types of sexual activities that typically would not be as high risk as others. Um, so those students were having the same experience I was, and that was learning untruths. Um, I'm surprised the bill only goes to third grade. I know that students are more mature in this day and age, but third graders still, um, and I don't know, maybe you all knew about sex and what was happening in third grade. I clearly didn't, but um, I remember my daughter, I, 
I was all prepared for the sex thing as a parent because I didn't, I had read about this. I, I like to research these things. And so I had the book that I, when they asked, and I, and that when they asked the questions, that was the time that it was important to talk about it unless they never asked you questions. Well, my daughter at the age of five came up to me one day and said, how are babies made? What is sex? I've been one. And I, I was only, I thought, oh my gosh, she's doing this early. Um, but I, I, um, you know, I had done the book, I was ready. And I, so I answered her questions and they were, they were detailed, but this is a kid who has a IQ of around 150. So she was saying, well, yeah, but the egg, how does that sperm get into the egg? How does it get inside of it? And so I explained, I showed her the book. I really felt at the end, I was quite pleased. I thought I did this. I didn't, you know, uh, make it too emotional. I was matter of fact, and she now knows the facts she wanted to know. The next day I heard her talking to her brother and she said, Justin, I just learned boys pee into women and that's how babies are made. And so you get a sense of developmentally appropriate <laughs> what um, children take away from that because they're not, they're not using some of the background information. The, the, the other thing that is of concern for me, um, I was on an airplane. This was the first time it's happened. And since then, I've read a number of things. Um, it was, you know, you have little magazines and it was an article and it was about seven different trans kids who'd become trans it, when they were in either middle or high school and who were now adults in their later 20s and regretted it and we're talking about now does that mean everybody would regret it no but these were individuals who made the decision as kids you know younger they weren't at that adult 21 year old age and i think the one i've since then read a several more things. I think the person who spoke about it most eloquently was Jazz, who has a show on TV where she went through her whole process and went from being a really beautiful young trans girl to being, um, she regrets the decision now and um, was really quite open about it, even, even though the the show is still on. Um, but that was another thing. And um, let me see, there was one other thing I wanted to bring up and I have forgotten it. So I, oh, I know what it is. Um, this is taking place in schools. So you have to deal with the issue from different area, different sides that people don't think about in school you know, oh, at school, well, we're teaching this. Well, then what are we going to do about this? And one of my concerns is not trans uh, or individuals who as adults decide to become trans, but it's trans bathrooms. My daughter was at Oberlin. I myself was very uncomfortable when a 21-year-old uh, was at the urinal and I came out of the stall and he smiled and waved and I... I started, um, there were no non-trans bathrooms. So I just would have my daughter stand at the door and just say, my mom would rather you wait a couple minutes and then she'll be out. But this, there are, we have already had a woman raped in a bathroom, a trans bathroom, and it's coming. 
Um, anyone who's been a woman, and I don't know if our group is, but anyone who's been a woman on and at night wanted to needed to stop on an uh, like Route 80 bathroom or on one of the expressways, those places are scary. There's often no one supervising. There's no one, and um, and you're in this 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 bathroom, and there's no one else in there if you even screamed and. It was interesting when I went to, I was in Norway and they have a lot of trans bathrooms, but all their trans bathrooms are right by the desk where there are always people um, who are in charge. And so if you had to yell or there was something that happened, there would be somebody. And so I felt very secure there in contrast to um, other situations. And I think this is a big issue for women that's not being talked about. Um, and it will come in because once you have the school go beyond just the generic sex ed, well, then what about our bathrooms? That's, it's going to, it, it inevitably will be a piece of this. So that's what I, those are some of the points that I've I thought about, I have a daughter, I'll say this, I have a daughter um, who, um, after Oberlin, she's, she's trans now, and um, I'm not uncomfortable with that aspect, but sometimes when individuals have um, emotional, um, ment- um, I, I want to be appropriate using the term mental um mental issues um um she is borderline personality disorder which is characterized by not having a sense of self and so one of the things a couple of therapists have talked to me about is that these are people for whom trans gives an identity gives a a whole picture and so oftentimes it might not be all of their life but a lot of times it's a part of it yeah, well, you've all you've all brought up a lot of uh, good points. I want to touch on a couple, and then I'll turn it back over to Dave, who's got his hand up. A, a couple of you have mentioned a quote-unquote agenda, and I think there's rising concern over this, not only in the schools, but kind of throughout society. There's been the recent leaked footage from Disney talking about how, you know, th- there is an attempt to put... LGBT characters in pretty much wherever they can. And there was then the response by Daily Wire. Daily Wire then announced that they're going to be doing Daily Wire Kids. A lot of people then canceled their Disney Plus membership and have gotten a Daily Wire membership instead. And so this these concerns are what's amplifying the concerns around this bill to play devil's advocate to that and sort of to some of these other points that have been brought up. There are concerns, as there were with sex ed, there are concerns that parents don't teach these topics at home. Um, Dave was mentioning that most kids do get a sense of consent. They get a sense of identity and, 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 and these things, these topics from home, from being taught by their parents. And one of the largest arguments for implementing these things in the school systems, particularly public schools, is that, well, these kids aren't getting this at home. Parents aren't being responsible in educating their children and protecting their children and so on. And so therefore, we should be implementing it in the schools. We should be teaching sex ed in the schools. We should be teaching DEI in the schools and these other topics. There's also concerns in that same area 
that this will be handled similarly to some of these previous uh, campaigns in different schools. There were concerns that it would be handled like uh, HIV education, where the quote unquote benefits of heterosexual monogamous relationships was included in a lot of the education around HIV AIDS because the risk of contracting AIDS was or contracting HIV was higher in homosexual populations, in polygam uh, polygamist populations. And so that was part of the education around HIV and AIDS in a lot of cases. And so people, there's concern that that same sentiment will be engendered in this education in this from this bill, right? That not only will people not be allowed to talk about it, but there is concern that the opposite will be talked about exclusively, that there is a benefit to not being LGBTQ, that there is a benefit to not being trans or not being homosexual and things. All of that right now is speculation. There's obviously nothing like that in the language of the law. And so that much is mostly unfounded concerns or at least maybe partially founded in the vagueness of some of the parts of the law. But yeah, that 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 is a concern. Another reason that this is becoming more 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 center stage is because a lot of these LGBT issues have become more prominent recently. Uh, Mary was talking about a, a rape case. I believe it's the one that Mr. Mann uh, dropped in the comments. There was this case in Loudoun County, Virginia, where there was an asexual assault case in a trans, trans inclusive bathroom. And that case was actually covered up. The, the school was was not incredibly open about the details of this case and was denying that it was a sexual assault for a while. And, and so that paired with things like trans inclusion in sports and these other issues that are becoming more mainstream, it's putting more of a spotlight on this bill because people are starting to choose a side. People are starting to decide you see this on a state by state basis in a lot of cases, like we were talking about school policies earlier, you're starting to see states take a stance on whether or not LGBT type issues should be taught and should be taught specifically in public schools, but whether they should be taught in general. Part of the part of the substance of this bill, and this is the last point that I wanted to touch on before turning it over to Dave. Um, and then anyone else who, who wants to jump in, if anyone has anything to say. But part of this bill focuses on medical treatments, too. This is the part that we haven't really talked about much yet, is that it includes um, disclosure of medical services and treatments to parents and the ability of parents to deny or, or remove, withdraw consent for, for these services for their children. Again, there, is, there isn't language specific to this in the bill, in the law, but at least part of that, at least part of the intent behind that is focused on cases where students are either given or are able to discuss getting things like hormone treatments or, or other interventions based on handling their, their gender identity issues, gender dysphoria, and concerns that those types of treatments will be given without parental consent. There are there have been cases where parents were not clued in when their student when their um, child was given hormone therapies to address their gender dysphoria. And so that that's another big part of this law that parents are concerned about. Two comments I'll read real quick just so that they can say what needs saying and then I'll turn it over to Dave. Uh, Mr. Mann uh, said have had to head out. It was a great 
discussion. He'll listen to the rest of it in the recording. Awesome. Thanks for joining um, and happy to have you listen to the recording. Uh, and then Mary jumped in. She said, and the time for math and reading and history and geography diminishes or disappears when individuals who sometimes don't have the skills of parents introduce into the daily schedule anti-bullying, dare, sex ed, etc. Actually, I've seen anti-bullying increase bullying. In dare, I saw kids begging to play the drug dealer instead of the drug buyer. Yeah. And, and there have been concerns over all of those, right? There were concerns that dare didn't work. There were concerns that sex ed doesn't work. There are concerns that anti-bullying zero tolerance policies don't work. And this all kind of revolves around this topic, this concept that the, the rationale for implementing some of these things in public education is that parents are not teaching it or parents are not being responsible with teaching it. But it begs the question of whether public school system educators are responsible and are capable of handling teaching these topics. And that was something that Mary touched on a couple of things. Uh, Dave, if you want to jump in, go ahead. Okay, well, one thing that Mary brought up was the uh, potential unevenness of improvised sex ed and by illustrating with one of her teachers who didn't do a particularly good job of it. It's like, well, the education establishment certainly presumes to do away with that because they've already established curricula for doing this and the teacher would be expected to follow that. And unfortunately, the curricula are probably grossly at variance with um, many of the um, uh, beliefs about what is appropriate of the parents of the children to whom this would be suggest, subje uh, subjected. So I don't think we have to worry about uh, about it being left up to the improvisation of the teacher to teach these subjects. But <clears throat> let's get into the whole issue of induced mass hysteria. I never heard of these topics until a few years ago. Um, I never even had a conception of this stuff. So the question is, you know, am I just naive? Was it always there? Or, or is this suddenly um, something that's uh, being foisted upon the public? When I was younger, like in the 1970s, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show came out, uh, cross-dressing and all that kind of thing was a joke. It was an entertainment, something that entertainers did for laughs, and and you would would sit and watch this thing, and it was you know you would laugh at it, and it would be like, wow, that was weird. Uh, it would would not occur to any reasonable person, I think, to engage in most of the behaviors that you were watching in this kind of thing. Um, certainly, there have always been cross-dressers, probably since time immemorial. There's ancient records of people doing this kind of thing, but to turn this around and to to now glorify um, transgenderism as though it were some sort of thing that people ought to aspire to. Um, this is what they are doing with all of these things that are just kind of violations of our societal norms. And this has extraordinarily serious consequences now. We're not talking about cross-dressing. We're talking about engaging in a lifetime of surgery and chemical manipulation. So there's nobody who can possibly make the argument that there's anything natural about today's transgender uh, existence. This is all made possible through use of drugs and surgical procedures that were never done before. And that obviously you can't just, it's not like being gay where you, you could make the argument, a plausible argument that, well, you're born that way and you just have this innate preference. And it's like, okay, I can understand that. It's obviously been documented throughout of history that people have been gay, but people haven't had these kinds of operations performed on their bodies. Um, there obviously cannot be any kind of longitudinal studies uh, regarding the long-term health effects of these things. Even if you 
discount the whole idea that, well, maybe this is a mistake and you really didn't want to do this. There's no conceivable, there's nobody on earth who can can tell us what the long-term effects of this kind of thing are. And it's it's very much like the vaccines, the so-called vaccines that were developed in a year And everybody now is supposed to roll up their sleeves and get one of these things. Well, there's a whole lot of stuff that is obviously not being talked about, but you can just look in the VAERS database for yourself and you can see that there's really very disturbing stuff going on with these drugs. Um, It's not publicized. And in fact, they'll do their best to prohibit you from finding out about this. Um, They certainly won't discuss it on your evening news while they're promoting that you should go to your local facility and get your third or fourth jab and all this. Well, what about transgenderism? I can't imagine this not having serious deleterious effects on your long-term livelihood. And then, of course, when uh, 20 or 30 years from now, people with these kinds of operations and chemical procedures start having very serious health problems, all of us will be induced or our children will be induced to um, pay for all of this with their tax dollars. To me, it's extremely frightening to look at my local healthcare providers. In the um, Minneapolis area, there's it's Park Nicolet and there's Children's Hospital. And all this. You go to any of these facilities now, and these medical practitioners on their websites are advertising that they provide gender services, especially when it's a thing like Children's Hospitals. I and mean, we have prepubescent children who are going to have be chemically and surgically manipulated so as to probably become sterile and possibly worse. And the medical community is saying, yeah, yeah, let's just, let's go ahead and let's do this. Uh, to me, this is extremely frightening and it's completely eroded my um, faith in, uh, in the medical community that I may have had in a more innocent time. Uh, the fact that a medical pr- practitioner would engage in this, I mean, you look at, look at the TV ads at night. It's really kind of a funny thing to watch you'll see an ad from a pharmaceutical company and they're advertising some drug that has nine pages of side effects that they have to read to you really quickly. And then that ad will be followed by another ad from a legal firm. And the legal firm is now cashing in on the baby boom who are experiencing the longer term effects of bad medicine that they engaged in in their earlier years. And this must be huge money. These these law firms that are now suing uh, uh, manufacturers of these drugs are cleaning up. I mean, they, they have, must have extraordinary advertising budget. What is going to happen when the people who have engaged in this non, you know, the, the, the people who are who engaged mostly in these things that, that they're now suing these companies for, well, they did it to correct a serious medical disorder that they felt had to be just, uh, had to be fixed, or maybe their life was in danger from, from illness or something. This is an elective procedure. All of this transgenderism is an elective procedure. And it's astounding to me that these companies would participate in it and would subject themselves to the legal liability. I mean, I would not invest in any surgical, in any pharmaceutical company or any organization that participates in any kind of surgical procedures relating to this. I mean, I would think that you know, in, in future years, 50 years from now, they're going to look back on what we're doing now and they're going to look at, at these transgender operations and they're going to think about them in the same way that we currently now think about lobotomies. Or then we have drugs like DES, for example. Um, most people have never even heard of DES. Mary Damer, I think, is yes, she's just posted on it. 
DES was introduced in, I think, 1938, and it wasn't discontinued till 1971. So for 33 years, they dispensed this drug to women who they believed to be at high risk for uh, miscarriages. And um, 33 years of dispensing this drug, it now apparently is having, um, so it's basically an enhancement of the estrogen and whatever. There's actually an organization dedicated to this called DES Action. And I'm gonna defer to Mary to talk about this because she knows way more about it than I do. But we have 33 years of the medical profession pushing this drug on pregnant women. And it's actually, it's a catastrophe. Um, nobody really understands even now what the long-term effects of this are going to be. And they appear to be intergenerational. They seem to have something to do with genetics or modifying the long-term behavior. It, it's, it, it, it is producing effects two and three generations down the line. So um, I was wondering if, yeah, Mary's got her hand up. Mary, could you take over here and talk about the DES? Um, it, in the drug companies when they, and Pfizer was one of the big ones, when they did um, start giving um, DES in the late 40s, it was very soon after that that they realized it didn't stop the miscarriages. And they realized in the rat and mouse studies, it went, the effects went down seven generations. What are those effects? Well, um, the boys who were given this strong estrogen developed many of them, not every, you know, it's every Every person is different, and but it turns on some of the DNA in your body that wouldn't have been turned on any other way. And um, so testicular ca cancer was common among the, the, the babies who were in the womb, the boys who were given this strong estrogen. They also gave the DES to girls who were growing too tall. And um, I Ironically, they almost decided we're going to give that to me. I was going to give us get a second dosage um, after all the, the time in the womb. But uh, fortunately, they decided not to. But those girls have had the same um, things happen. It's a really a shame. The CDC was our major um, funding agency for doing research. Without it, I wouldn't know half the things that happened to me were caused by this. I just would have thought it was me. And they had it, it you could direct people and doctors to the website. A lot of doctors don't know about DES. You could direct it to the website. Um, but you, um, they took it down two months. I was going to it to use it as a re reference to direct somebody and I wanted to find a specific sentence and I looked and they'd taken it all down. There's no more um, of the um, extensive, extensive results of their CDC and the damage. I mean, because it's all damning the research. And so why did they take it down? Is there an agenda? I, I can only suppose I, and, and think about it. I also find it ironic. Everybody knows about the Tuskegee Airmen. Everybody knows about the Lidamide babies. No one knows about DES. And, and most of the millions of women who got it um, never knew um, that their mothers took it because their mothers were told they were, were being given vitamins. Um, my mother was a nurse, so she knew. She sent me, and the minute the first cancer came up and it was connected with DS, I got a letter immediately. So um, she knew. We had no idea of all the other things that would be coming. And I, that's a whole discussion in 
in itself. And sometimes it's kind of hard to talk about some of those things too. <laughs> and I think that's why probably more people don't know about it because very few women want to talk about their vaginas and cervixes in great detail, unless maybe there's a bunch of them. So I sometimes wonder the men who are my age, who are transing and people saying, oh, they're so old and now they're transing to be a woman. Well, they just started. They, they really were resistant. No one would do. And we kept saying, do this research, these boys, what, what did this estrogen do to them? They, you have to look at the hormonal impact and their sexuality. And they didn't for years and they had just started to. And um, I think with the CDC change, it's probably not going to happen. I know in one, they found a little part of an ovary in one man. Um, it had clearly had had profound changes for those men. And, and so from, I'm really sympathetic for any man who's older and is transing because it's very possible that they had this for nine months and, 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 you know, this is what it was. It was 5,000, 5,000 times as strong as the pill is today. That's how much estrogen those women, all the mothers mostly got breast cancer. My mother did. I don't know of one DES woman who took the DS who didn't get breast cancer. And, and she had to take something that dried up all the estrogen in her body to fight the cancer, which, which caused it its own problems. So that's like it on the fat. If anybody can go DS action, now that the CDC is down, at least we have DS action. And they talk about how this impacted the mothers, the daughters, the grandchildren, and they're just starting to look at the, um, Great, great, the next generation. I want to propose a sort of devil's advocate argument. The broader point that I'm trying to get all your takes on is how this conversation may fit into the right to try conversation, the, the ability for patients to seek out treatments that have not been fully vetted, that have not been around for long enough for uh, pharmaceutical companies to generate substantial safety data on efficacy data on and things like that. And there's obviously a push in that direction to allow with certain restrictions or certain limitations, allow people to either take, uh, uh, well, to take medications like that in certain contexts, if they believe that the risk, uh, risk reward trade-off is worth it for them. And so the data on all of this is evolving. We do know more about hormone treatments and sex reassignment surgeries and things like that. But at what point does it fall into this arena? At what point does it become? Because, you know, gender dysphoria does have a lot of comorbidities with anxiety and depression, a lot of suicidality, a lot of negative impacts of, of, um, gender dysphoria, right? And so parents of children who are experiencing these symptoms, by and large, are going to want to help their children, are going to want to help reduce suffering. And so there are options falling outside of these. There are, you know, a, a lot of people may call them conversion therapy or things like that, and, and with much more of a negative connotation, but, but there are options out there. To what extent should a parent be allowed to take part, allowed to provide these types of treatments to their children? Is there a certain amount of data that we need for 
negative impact of the hormones or sex reassignment surgery or things like that for a parent to no longer be allowed to seek out these less less standard treatments, I suppose, in an, an attempt to, I guess, quell their their child suffering. Um, I'll, I'll turn it over to Dave. Dave's had his hand up for a little while. And then Mary, if you want to jump in. And then after this, we'll probably shift gears a little to uh, talk about salaries since that was the winner of the Facebook poll. So Dave, go ahead. Um, there is this concept, and this is in the Hippocratic Oath, I think also really implied by the Hippocratic Oath, which is to err on the side of caution. We're talking about radically modifying children's bodies at an age in which they can't conceivably understand the implications of that. There are adults who don't understand the implication of what's going on here. Um, and we're basically using them as laboratory rats and they're making irreversible changes uh, that could ultimately just, just destroy their lives and lead them to be more suicidal and more whatever. In, in my opinion, psychological counseling is the only appropriate thing to exercise on a minor. Now, once you become a fully capable adult, especially after the age of 21, I'd say, and you're allowed to do basically everything, it's like, okay, that's between your you and your doctor. You know, uh, when you're on the subject of COVID, if you want to take ivermectin rather than the vaccine um, and um, do that, you should talk about right to try. Uh, doctors have been deplatformed and had their licenses threatened because they are, are advocating for doing something other than the vaccine. And it's like, well, the vaccine doesn't seem to be particularly effective. Um, and what, so if I'm an adult and I wanna try ivermectin, uh, and if I'm also choosing for my child, um, I should have the right to try that. What, what about the right to try there? What we see now in the whole transgenderism thing is states, uh, blue states, particularly disallowing psychological counseling as a treatment for gender dysphoria. So talk about the right to try. Psychological counseling is not an irreversible damaging physical procedure that the, that the child can't somehow over, you know, change uh, afterwards. So I, uh, to me, there is absolutely no validity to this idea that, oh, well, this is a symmetrical argument um, and all of this. Um, so, you know, then off of the subject of um, of medical reasonableness of what's going on here is the whole thing of societal reasonableness. Um, Mary brought up the bathrooms and the locker rooms, and, and I might add showers in public facilities. Um, you go to the, your local gym, and it's like, okay, you're a woman, you're in the shower in your local gym, and some guy walks in, and he claims to be a female, and uh, is this something now that you're going to be able to defend against? Well, a lot of women, if this starts happening, are simply not going to go to the gym. So it doesn't matter whether you think that the guy is within his rights and all this kind of thing. We're talking about profoundly disturbing uh, probably the great majority of the population with regards to the implications of us all pretending that uh, men who identify as women are actually women. Uh, that similarly for the devastation of women's sports. I mean, we see at the beginning of women's sports already. Uh, we have these NCAA and other championships now being won by wide margins by mediocre male uh, athletes who, you know, ranked 469th when they competed as a male, but now they're number one and they're number one by 30 minutes or something uh, against a woman who was trying to beat the, the old record by a few seconds. So there's 
enormous social consequences for all of this. And it goes even much larger than that when you look at the mechanism that they're using to try to implement this. So um, this is all being encoded. The Democrats are now trying to push this through using um, HR5, which was this past Congress, uh, 2021 to 2022, called the Equality Act. And what the Equality Act seeks to do is it's actually going to modify, if you read it, it modifies the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include gender identity in there along with race, okay, and everything else. So now you think about the implications of the Civil Rights Act. And so they're not doing this as a separate new bill that says, well, we're going to treat transgenders as a special class. It's going to be like, no, you have no capacity to distinguish against someone who claims to be a man who claims to be a woman in any regard for any reason. So let's think about what happened with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It had enormous societal implications. And I, I am a proponent of the sentiment behind the Civil Rights Act. Uh, one of the things that it did was um, in the South, there used to be different bathrooms for black people and white people. And it would be labeled colored and you had to go and you had to use your, you know, broke uh, according to your skin color, you had to go to one or the other bathroom. Well, as a result of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, those colored bathrooms disappeared. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think it's, it's really horribly offensive. And you know, I'm not going to sit here and spend a half hour de de uh, defending myself against the idea that, oh, somehow I approve of that kind of segregation. But now our entire society is filled with building infrastructure that has men's rooms and women's rooms. If they modify the 1964 Civil Rights Act to do this in the same manner that they dispensed with the colored and, um, and white bathrooms. Um, we're going to talk about the actual concept of men's and women's separate bathroom facilities, shower facilities, anything in any place of public accommodation being illegal. And I don't think that the vast majority of the population is going to go along with that. And then there's the question of the expense of this. We're talking about the demolition of every bathroom facility in every building in the United States, every public building, the replacement of that. And we're also talking about the elimination of building of businesses that can't afford this. So if you look at what happened with the Americans with Disabilities Act, everybody applauds that, says, wow, what a wonderful thing. And I understand that it was a, a, a there's a great positive benefits to the ADA. What the ADA also did was it put an awful lot of small businesses out of business. I mean, it was thousands and thousands. It also enabled, um, because they couldn't afford to uh, completely uh, re rehab uh, their facilities that they were in, or their facilities were too small. No matter what you did to this facility, it couldn't accommodate disabled people. And then it also unleashed an army of lawyers on the small business community, and you can read the stories about this everywhere, who would go around to all these facilities and look for minor deviations or whatever from the Americans with Disabilities Act, and they would sue these small businesses out of existence. Uh, so this was a travesty and that the press doesn't cover this. They don't cover the downsides of trying to accommodate this kind of radical change on our infrastructure and the businesses that depend on this infrastructure and all this kind of thing. Um, the fact that they're trying to incorporate this into the Civil Rights Act to me seems like an extremely uh, dangerous um, and um, just a horrific thing. Um, all of this, in my opinion, is being foisted upon us by a very small minority that for some reason seems to have gained control 
of corporate America and, and, and our political parties to, to the greater degree, obviously, the Democrats and the Republicans. And I think it's a similar to like voter ID. If you do, if you look at the polling on voter ID, a plurality of Americans, easily a plurality, I think it's closer to 75 or 80 percent are in favor of voter ID. And voter ID is just plain a sane, reasonable, obvious thing that you should expect somebody to show at a voting booth. But guess what? We have an entire party in this country that it claims that anyone who supports voter ID is racist, and they somehow manage to exert their uh, will upon a dissenting population that to, to whom this subject is apparently not, a port, uh, not important enough that they're going to fight them on it. So this whole concept to me is just a gross uh, miscarriage of power uh, by a very small percentage of people who, for some reason, have induced this hysteria in the population or this, this acquiescence in the population that requires that we have to lay down and let them roll over us like a steamroller. And now I'll see the, the floor to uh, Mary, who has her hand up. Yeah, go ahead, Mary. Yes, Mary is slow at unmuting. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I, I'll start out. Um, I wasn't going to start with this, but I will. I'm far more positive than Dave is about the ADA and its impact on society, but that's because my background's in special education and I've not been a small business owner. So I would come at it from a different perspective. I do see, and what I would teach my students in college is that it really helped all of us. Cause like if you're pushing a child in a carriage or you have a suitcase, and that um, curb is down because it's an ADA requirement that that curb be, you know, so anybody in a wheelchair can get through. Well, with our baby carriage or our, our thing, and, th and there's a number, I, I had a whole list of them that I would, I would talk to my students about because even though it's painful at first, in the end, it really helped. And especially for those of us who are getting older, we can appreciate some of the ADA changes also. So that one is a little different, but I do want to, um, for me, age of consent is what needs, it, it's important that age of consent be um, and maturity and developmentally appropriate. Now, is that 21? For some mature individuals, it is. Um, I kind of grew up in a real dysfunctional home. So for me, 21 wouldn't have been, I should have been about 30 before I made that decision. But if they can come to some kind of agreement, you know, I do think that adults, um, I tend to be a little bit libertarian and a little bit more so as I, as I get older, because sometimes the Republicans, you know, there is a little bit too much control in one area that I that I'm saying, oh, no, let the people decide. So that's that's one thing um, that. But I also believe it that that OK, if, it's, if there's an age set, that's fine. But we have to do there has to along with that be honest discourse of the disadvantage what happens is like the cdc they erase all of that it's gone you'd have to know there was a des action website how many people are even going to know that who are becoming trans so it has to be that in any discussion of something that's that um I'll use the word radical of a surgery just because it, it, any surgery that involves you going under IVU is radical. Um, they have to, to know the pros and the cons. And 
if that information is taken off of websites and removed and not anywhere that can be easily found and not part of the discussion, then that's wrong. Because that's that then kind of goes into the indoctrination level. And I've seen I, I actually right where we live in Ohio, there's a toy store and there's a little children's store and I frequent them to buy my grandchild something. And both of the owners have talked to me um, at length about women. They have a number of women who will come in with a baby in a, a stroller and, they'll, and the mom will say, oh, I, I don't know what I should get. And um, the woman will say, well, is it a girl or boy? Because they can't tell it's, it's non-gender revealing clothing and everything. And the moms will say, oh, I'm letting my child decide. When my child decides if they are a boy or a girl, then we'll know, but that should be their decision. To me, that's indoctrination. Um, I had read once a story, I, and I still remember it was years ago, it was in a hippie commune. I had wanted to live in a hippie commune. <laughs> and it was from a hippie commune, but it was written by a girl who'd grown up since the time she was a baby. And she had had that kind of, you know, you can decide if you're a girl or boy, that's up to you. She said that for decades, it, and it still impacted her, that that kind of confusion, it would have been better to at least have a, a, a label, a dis designation when she was young. And if she wanted to change it, fine. That's how she felt. Okay, if I could, I could change it. But I, at that age, she said, I wasn't ready to make that decision. And it was, it really, it, it messed up a lot of things. So um, I think it's the age, but I think then whoever is promoting this needs, like, for example, even in Florida, he should be, DeSantis, and I am a DeSantis fan, but there should be more information um, anytime this dis is, is discussed, positive and negative, and examples of people, positive, negative. But if we decide the public can't take this information and then we remove it from everywhere, there's no age that this is going to be um, have integrity to make that decision because you, you don't have the facts. So that's what I wanted to say. And I wanted to add, I just signed up as a poll watcher. I hope everybody there, because they're having training next week for all the, um, to be, to work in a voting location. You can, you know, be, there's a number of roles and things you can do. You can simply greet people, find their name out. There's different things, but I'm going to training next week and wherever I work, it will be no fraudulent voting. And you bring up a good point about being informed. The, the problem with issues like this, um, it, when they get framed as, as reflective of the morality of the person taking a particular stance, it shuts down a lot of that conversation to where, you know, if you, hypothetically, if you advocate for uh, counseling therapy and these things that are considered conversion therapy, or if you push back against hormone treatments or sex reassignment uh, surgeries and, and things of that nature, all of a sudden you get labeled as a transphobe and that conversation gets shut down. Regardless of what type of research exists or doesn't exist on, on hormone treatments or on surgeries or on, on 
other interventions, right? They, that research, those data can't be discussed if one party in the conversation is immediately labeled as a bigot. And then no one has a full picture of, of all of the information in this issue. And, and so that, that's part of why we discuss these things on, on this podcast, obviously, is to try to bring these perspectives together to talk. I recognize that we don't often have the more far left progressive leaning perspectives in here because they often refuse my invitations to join the, the conversations. And so I know my biases of, of being more conservative do shine through sometimes. I, I recognize that the people that join sometimes are more either either freedom or free speech at the very least oriented. And, and so, you know, that is an issue that will hopefully be remedied as the podcast grows and as we bring more people into these conversations. But but I agree I agree wholeheartedly that that people do need to be informed when making these decisions, and and so, so yeah. So I'll I'll turn it over to Dave uh, for one last uh, comment on the on the Par- uh, Parental Rights and Education Act, and then we'll we'll jump over to at least briefly uh, talking about discussing pay and salaries. So Dave, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to get in one last thought here. First of all, I agree largely with Mary Daimler. The American Disabilities Act obviously did have benefits, but it had also enormous costs that are never discussed. I don't really see the benefit of a society that seems to be uh, committing more and more of its youth to something that never used to seem to be a problem. I mean, there there's all sorts of things that are now erupting as major problems, like autism, for example. And autism, I think, can be pretty clearly demonstrated to have radically increased in recent years. And there are people who believe this has to do with drugs that are being administered to people. I'm not going to really go any much further with that. But I think this is all just part of something really larger. Um, there is clearly in, in motion a large uh, movement. Um, and I think it's financed by people who really don't like us to remove the pillars of our society, to demolish the, facil- the, the pillars of our society. <clears throat> and uh, the whole idea with transgenderism is like, well, if you can deny the reality of your body uh, that is plainly evident to any person looking at what you were born with, well, why can't we just deny the reality of everything else? So there's a really great article that came out and it was published on the Daily Signal on April Fool's Day, but it's no joke. And it's called Transgenderism, Why Stop There? And it's a great article. I recommend to everybody to read it. I posted a link to it. And it's like, well, this is just a stepping stone on the way to something else. Well, why can't I identify as black? That is obviously not, oh, maybe I could get melanin treatments or something, or maybe I could just paint myself. Oops, wait, that would not be politically correct. I'm not allowed to do that. Or maybe white people, black people are allowed to paint themselves white and declare themselves to be white. Why can't I apply for affirmative action uh, benefits because of the fact that I identify as black? Uh, relating to voter registration, uh, how this relates to that is like, well, what if I identify as five people? Why can't I go to my local voting um, Uh, polling place and say, well, I'm five people. And someone will say to me, well, obviously you're not. Your body looks like you're just one person. I'll say, well, you're not allowed to say that because I identify. I I identify is now the magic word. That's like, well, this now gives you the permission to pretend to be anything you want. 
And I can just say, well, I want five ballots. And if you don't give me five ballots, there's something wrong with you. And, um, you know, so obviously there's a, 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 a sort of a promotion of, uh, or a normalization of unreality here that is dismantling the pillars of our society. And you can call me a conspiracy uh, theorist or tell me to put on my tinfoil hat or whatever, but it seems very clear to me. And I think the whole transgender movement is just a stepping stone on the way to something far more diabolical. Well, there has been, and I, I'll, I'll end it with this, and then we'll briefly talk about discussing salaries. I know that's going to be a, a hard shift in topic, but obviously this conversation opens up a huge can of worms, and we'll have to do a separate episode at some point on gender dysphoria and transgenderism and things. I'd like to get someone who has undergone some level of treatment for gender dysphoria involved in the conversation, get their perspective on this too, and and some other people that are more more liberal, more progressive on this, um, so that we could have, you know, someone else to to present the opposite perspective that I can only I can only devil's advocate so much on this because I'm not entirely sure how the opposite argument would best be framed. But in any case, there is a push to push against objective truth. I mean, this is even in science. I've had um, classes, policy classes. I shouldn't say in science because it was a policy class, but I've had policy classes that have very much stressed the fact science is not objective, that science has its biases, that it's influenced by politics, that it's influenced by a number of different factors to acknowledge those biases and acknowledge how science could be manipulated for those reasons. And all of that is true. And I will, I will concede that even science, scientists have their biases. There is really no way to handle pursuing a, a scientific, I, I don't know, question 100% objectively because human beings have biases, right? And scientists have biases. But you, I, I agree with the, the sentiment that you've presented that, that there is this push to, to combat the idea of objective truth. I'll, I'll leave it at that, I suppose. But in any case, we'll, we'll try and discuss gender dysphoria and transgenderism and, and LGBT issues more broadly, or maybe even more specifically, if, if there's a particular topic that comes up. Um, but since it won the Facebook poll, I'd like to at least briefly shift over to discuss salaries, to discuss the idea of talking about how much you or other people make with others. This is often frowned upon by employers. It's often, it's often encouraged that people do not discuss how much they make um, for a variety of reasons. But the opposite side of this argument is that not discussing how much one makes can lead to or exacerbate discrimination or differences in pay based on immutable traits, right? There, there's discussion around the so-called gender pay gap. There's discussion about racial or sexual or gender or what, what have you, discrimination in the workplace, and that discussing how much you make with your coworkers could help mitigate this. And so 
I, I guess I'll just want to open it up to, to you all and, and let you chime in and see what you all think to see, to see what you think about this topic. Um, there is, uh, we got one comment right off the bat that said, well, not discussing it allows the workplace to take control of the salaries and underpay people without them knowing they're underpaid. And, and that's, that is true, right? That, that provides them more flexibility in, in doing that, because obviously if you don't know you're being underpaid, then you're not going to, to raise concerns about it. The counter argument to that, I would say, is that not discussing it could also decrease tensions in the workplace in certain capacities, because let's say someone discusses with their coworker how much they're making, if they're making less than the other person, assuming they have the same position, same qualifications, same, right, that they're in a position where they can actually compare their salary or their paycheck with this other person. If they're making less than the other person, the two possibilities are one, they're being underpaid and they're being discriminated for some reason, or they're, they're, they're not making as much as they deserve in comparison to this person, or for, for whatever reason the employer has determined, they aren't as good of an employee, they aren't as valuable to the company, to the institution. And so therefore, even though they're in the posi same position, they may have the same qualifications or, or whatever else, maybe the employer did determine some reason to pay them less. Maybe they perform less expertly, maybe they have uh, worse outcomes, whatever that may be, that opens up that can of worms too. So there's the two sides of it, right? It could open up a conversation about being underpaid and being discriminated against. It could also open up a conversation about the fact that you may be a worse employee or a worse worker than someone else and maybe justifiably being paid less. So those are the two different sides of it, but I'd like to hear what you all think. Um, I think I may have missed one, but I think I saw Mary's hand first and then Dave. So I'll, we'll go in that order, I suppose. Uh, Mary, go ahead. Yes, I'm gonna talk about the conversation I didn't have till late in life and I should have with other women. My salary's always been posted because I work at university, have taught at universities or in schools and they have to. So anybody could know anybody else's and we checked them out. So, and it, it that really didn't, um, it's when you have unions and they're posted and, and you have certain limits, it, it's really not an issue. However, there are, I see so many young women who are putting themselves in financial trouble. And when I talk about this with them, it's just like, oh, I'd never do that. Um, when I got a divorce is a whole changing of money, a whole reckoning and whatever. And each state is very different. And most people don't even know their state laws. For example, I didn't know in Ohio, if any part of the two parties has had an inheritance, even if it was 20, 30 years ago, they get every cent of that off the top. And so that was how I ended up after a divorce without even a house and certainly not half of the money. 
Well, I started to talk to women about this and they said, you mean you didn't get, you didn't have your sister have, have a box at the bank and you, you gave her money and jewels and you just had, just in case something like this would happen, you have to look out for yourselves. My mother said that when my mother said that, I said, why didn't you ever, this is the female secret I never knew about and nobody ever told me. I don't have a box of extra money and jewels. And because I think a lot of people, you go into marriage thinking you'll never get divorced. And so you don't. And this is something that people don't write about. So when you, when you brought up the salary thing, I think really the issue is I, all these, there are all these women. I was, I had been working as a, as a principal. I would have had a great pension, but I had a child with special needs and I knew I couldn't work 60 hours a week. And so that's why I taught it. I, 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 I did consultation, taught at the university and did things that I didn't have to work all the time and could give him the attention he needed. But that, and there are a lot of mothers in that situation. Think of all the special needs kids and who usually makes the sacrifices for that. Those marriages are at a high risk of divorce. And so when that happens, that mother not only now has sole care of the child, unless there's a custody arrangement, but is in a very bad financial situation. And so, you know, people talk about, you know, before marriages writing prenuptials, but nobody ever talks about addressing the issue. If one of the parties is working less, making less because of the needs of a child, or, you know, there could be a couple other different, their own health, that if something should happen to this partnership, we will divide things equally. In some states, they do that, and then it's, it's not an issue. But in far more, in fact, there are many states now that, well, women have equal rights, they shouldn't get alimony. And I think about all the moms I know, because I was a principal of a school for special ed students who had that designation, and some were very involved, and those mothers were doing an amazing job, but I, I wonder where what those mothers' position is today, years later, um, and so that's the salary issue that to me is the most important. And women, I don't think women like to talk about money. Nobody ever had brought up this topic. I'd never thought to bring it up. And it's really important. And if there are any young girls out there listening, you get yourself a lawyer so that if anything happens to the relationship, it's going to end up fair to you, especially if you've done, you know, child care, the things that um, were needed, you know, families are, it's not always equal 50, 50, sometimes it changes, but many times it doesn't. So that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't remember the numbers. So take this with a grain of salt. But I remember seeing a study that was done, I believe it was done by fidelity, but it, I could be wrong. So again, <laughs> double check before taking me completely at my word. But it seems to be getting less common that couples do discuss finances too, right? Uh, couples less commonly now share bank accounts. And, and so there's less knowledge about what the other person makes. And 
that that introduces a whole slew of issues if suddenly you get divorced and you were not aware of what you were going to be left with. We got a couple comments uh, on what Mary was saying, and then um, I'll turn it over to Dave, who's had his hand up. Um, we had one. We had someone say in response to uh, me bringing up the fact that it may start a conversation about not being as good of your job. Uh, this person said, if you're slacking at work, that should also be communicated appropriately to the worker. If the worker doesn't know, they could reach for more. Why would they? Um, and then we got a comment that said, I don't know why it gets, I don't know why it gets split equally in any situation where the spouse isn't dependent on the salary. This person has divorced parents. Um, they think that that sound seems outdated. So uh, I'll turn it over to Dave, who's had his hand up for a little while too. So Dave, go ahead and jump in. Well, first, I'll agree with Mary that I think, especially in the case of homemakers or women who do not work in the uh, in the money economy, who work very hard, who work long, long hours, raising families and all that, our society has not yet really developed uh, a mechanism for fairly compensating them or, or treating them as as equal partners in, in what amounts to a partnership um, and, and giving them equal con compensation. So, um, but anyway, all of that seems to me that, to be a little bit off topic here because we're talking about who gets the money in a divorce and what the original thing was really about salaries. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, if you're in a government, uh, if you're in any kind of uh, thing where you're working on a pay scale or where you you are, you have a pay grade or something this is and, and you're in the government or if you're in the military or any of that and that's a lot of people your um, income is published and if you want to look up the incomes of the all the personnel in your school district for example who are hired if you just go to the trouble you can find them by name well, most likely every single one of them uh, there's a site called openthebooks.com that has information like that. And there's also many other sites. And I think it's a matter of, it's a public requirement that people in the public sector have their salaries published. So for them, it's not an issue. If you're interested, you can go and look at all your coworkers' salaries and there's just no need for a discussion. In the private sector, there's nothing prohibiting people from discussing their salaries. I don't think I've never signed an employment contract that said that I would not discuss my salary with anyone. And I think that would be an indefensible clause in an employment contract if some employer were to offer one. So if people really feel that it would be their benefit to know each other's salaries, I mean, they would just have to overcome their own uh, secretiveness or their own uh, lack of confidence or their, their fear of embarrassment or something and uh, have a thing where they discuss their salaries with each other. But there's, it's not really a, um, uh, to me, it's a non-issue. It's like, well, it's voluntary. So if, it, if it's voluntary and people aren't doing it, it's, it's their initiative to do it. But on another slightly side topic here, I think there's another really interesting thing on this subject that I encountered earlier this year. There's a guy named Kyle Houghton, H-O-O-T-E-N. And he is the um, managing editor of, of a, a local Minneapolis area newspaper called Alpha News. And he gave a talk. There's a group of conservatives that meets once a month. Um, he gave a talk in early January and he really kind of startled me with what he said because it was kind of a non-conservative viewpoint that I found I could agree with pretty well. And he said, you know, 
he's a younger guy. He's obviously in his 20s, I think, and I'm an older guy. And he says, you know, you conservatives are going to have to do something about, you're, there's going to have to be something uh, in, in it for younger people to have them want to invest in this society. Otherwise, they're going to tear it down and replace it with something else. And he said, the opportunities for young people, people my age, his age, which would be in their early 20s, people coming out of college or whatever, are getting fewer and fewer and they're getting harder to find. And his, his position was that um, our society, especially having exported so manufacturing jobs and so many other things overseas, um, is increasingly got no uh, reward for people who believe in the fundamental American concept of um, independent business and capitalism and all of that kind of stuff. And really kind of st startled me by saying that. And then as one additional thought, I thought I would say that um, I think the whole concept of federal loan guarantees is destroying the younger generation uh, for multiple reasons. But one of the reasons that it's destroying them is that it enables people who shouldn't be going to college or who wouldn't ordinarily go to college to go. So I have met extraordinary numbers of young people. And I was, I was involved in an exchange people, an exchange program that allowed me to have a fair amount of contact with high school age children. And um, the vast, vast majority of children that I've talked to really have no idea why they would go to college. They know they're going and they're gonna go, but they don't know why they're in college. Um, and, and that a lot, a lot of, I would guess maybe the majority of kids in college today don't know why they're in college because somebody told them they had to go and their parents bought a McMansion so that they didn't save enough money for them to go to college. So now they're going to college and amassing an enormous debt and they're getting a degree in something like political science or whatever, or some field in which there are no jobs. If they, you, you, know, you would have to go on to be a PhD and be a professor. Well, that's a very small job pool. Or you actually get out of school with a four-year degree and you didn't have to do something else that you didn't study for. Well, you're not going to be competitive for that field. If you didn't go to school to be something specific, like a computer programmer or an accountant or one of those things, that somebody specifically is looking for people to hire, you're going to be qualified to you know, work at your local restaurant or something. And so we have, we're graduating what must be millions of kids every year, basically they're kids at 22, and they've amassed this horrendous debt because their parents didn't save for their education. They have no idea why they went to school, and now they're qualified to serve coffee somewhere. That's my point. Yeah, it's an important conversation that needs to be had. There's a growing sentiment that you need college to survive. And I think that a lot of people wind up in fields that don't have the outlook that they've been told or that they believe that, that it has um, or the job opportunities that they think it has. And so I'm actually, I'm glad that this conversation has went in a couple different directions because I wasn't sure how exactly we were going to discuss the, the topic of discussing salaries or discussing income, but um, but we've touched on some some interesting and and I think topics that haven't aren't often discussed in this larger conversation around uh, discussing salaries. So with that, I think we're gonna call tonight uh, to a close. Uh, bring tonight to a close. We've been talking for quite a while for uh, on these things. Um, 
someone did just ask, have we discussed at all wage gaps? No, but I think that we'll, we'll likely discuss that at a, at another time in, in the future. Um, cause I'm, I'm sure that there's interest in discussing that, um, on that note, um, thank you all for joining the conversation. I think it was, it was a really good one. Um, and, uh, take care. Thanks, Zach. I enjoyed it. At all. There's just a deliberate effort to block the kind of findings that I've published, and I'm not the only one that's being blocked. This type of authoritarian or tyrannical behavior can't just go away without people noticing. They don't like what you're saying, and therefore they're going to silence you. Peer review has really broken down. If there is no spirit of liberty, as Learned Hand once said, behind the law, the parchment is never going to survive. If they express their views, they may find themselves not getting a degree or unwelcome in their classes. The reason he took his own life was because of this cancel culture campaign. Where parents are saying, no, my kid's not putting this on their face. Through that, they've been led to, well, listen, why are you guys teaching critical theory? The science upon which these regulations are based is wrong. If we lose free speech, we are done for. Academia Uncensored, the Say What Need Saying podcast.